What is the difference in guilt and repentance? We'll talk about that today as we continue our study in Ezekiel on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a shiny brand new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a minister, and I speak Jesus. Jesus on the mountain, Jesus in the streets, just like the song says, I speak Jesus. My four-year-old was playing in the room while I was listening to that song the other day, And as he often does when I'm listening to something, when he asks me what a song means, I usually have to think about it and how I could communicate the meaning in in four-year-old terms so that he could understand it. And I told him that whenever we have problems, we should talk to Jesus about it. And then, as he also typically does, he asked me, why? And I said, because Jesus will help us with our problems. And again, he said, why? I said, because Jesus loves us. And again, he said, why? Now, I have to admit, I was a little bit stumped whenever that question came. (laughs) I should have seen it coming, but uh, I wasn't ready for an answer to that question. I don't know why God loves us. I don't know why God loves us enough to send Jesus down here to die for us. I don't know why Jesus loves us enough to let himself be sent. And I certainly don't know how to explain all that to a four-year-old, but it's true. He does, and he did. God's wrath was against us, But God deferred his wrath. We got a second chance. I hope you've taken it. Israel was actually given a lot more than just second chances. They were given third, fourth, fifth, on and on. And that's what we've been covering in chapter 20 of the book of Ezekiel. The main idea of this chapter is that it's been retelling Israel's history through a framework of their repeating cycles of going into idolatry. God would threaten wrath against them, and then God would defer that wrath. For one reason or another, God would would relent and give the people another chance. And at this point in the chapter, starting at verse 33, we start looking to the future, Israel's future. Israel's future is pretty bright, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. In the immediate future, Jerusalem is going to be ransacked and the survivors carried away. In the far-off future, God will restore Israel's place and exalt them to a higher position than they ever had before. Because God loves Israel. And why? Well, I can't explain it, But it's true. So, when God gives such a great demonstration of his favor and grace and mercy, what should our response to that be? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Open your Bible to Ezekiel 20, and we're going to pick up in a moment at verse 33. As I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you were scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. Now, this is almost kind of contradictory or or conflicting, I guess, when you when you read this here, because God uh, many times in the Bible, when he said he did something for Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Well, that's always been the language of love and grace. He has repeatedly said that he brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It's Exodus language. And yet here, 
God brings up an outstretched arm with wrath poured out. He's using Exodus language because he's threatening them with a new Exodus. In the last Exodus, he brought them out of Egypt, but in this new Exodus, he's kicking them out of Israel. Verse 35, And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. An interesting phrase in this set of verses is that God said he would make Israel to pass under the rod. Now that phrase uh, is kind of a unique phrase. We've, we've heard lots of judgment language before, but passing under the rod, and that's a unique phrase here because, you know, a lot of these phrases we've heard before, it's the judgment language that's common in Ezekiel, but this thing about passing under the rod, that's a new one. So this, this refers to the practice of a shepherd with his sheep, counting them to account for every single one. The shepherd would hold his staff over each sheep, and he would stand at the passage to a new territory and, and count each one of the sheep as they passed under. It's basically taking a census, counting them one by one. This is considered pastoral language, as pastors are often referred to as shepherds. Only, this is not a statement necessarily of caring for the sheep, but of holding each one accountable for judgment. Not a single one is going to get away. Every single one would be personally judged and counted. Everybody is going to pay for what they've done. No one will slip away unnoticed. Verse 38, And I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Go, serve every one of you his idols, now and hereafter, if you will not listen to me. But my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. So God is getting rid of the sinners. As far as we know, that's everybody, okay? <laughs> that's, that means everyone. Ezekiel had implied this back in chapter 9, I think, um, that, that everybody in Jerusalem was corrupt. Nobody was saved, not a single person. And so basically, every person who passes under the rod is doomed. And as always, this is so that all will know that God is the Lord. You know, the scary thing about these verses is that God is saying he is going to be acknowledged as the Lord one way or another. Israel could have acknowledged him and submitted to him, and they would have been fine. They could have just done it before. But instead, they profane God by, by claiming to serve him while they were actually serving idols. And so now they're going to acknowledge that God is the Lord as he pours out his judgment on them. It kind of reminds me of this New Testament verse, and it's again, it's kind of a scary New Testament verse, Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have this same idea showing up in the New Testament. One way or another, everyone will confess Jesus as Lord. Now, they can do it now. You can do it now. You can submit to him now. You can confess him as Lord now, and right now is the best time to do it, because if you don't, and you die, and you stand before God at the judgment seat, you will take a knee there and admit that Jesus is Lord. Every single person who has ever lived is going to do this one way or another, either here on this earth or at something called the Great White Throne Judgment. But every atheist, every Muslim, every Buddhist, every fake Christian, every agnostic, everyone 
is going to have to do this because there are going to be no atheists or agnostics on that day. You need to think about that. Someday, there will not exist a single Muslim, not a single Mormon, not a single Jehovah's Witness, not a single Hindu, or any other false religion. Every single one of those fake religions has an expiration date because someday, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it will be, as it was often said in Ezekiel, then they will know that I am the Lord. Recently, I was watching the Lord of the Rings series, uh, the Amazon series that just came out, and my wife and I were watching through it. We thought it was pretty good. And once we got done with that, because it was only like eight episodes, we decided we just wanted to stay in Middle Earth a little bit longer. So then we started into the Hobbit movies. And then finally, we started into the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And and the, the extended edition, of course, just, just as the good Lord intended it to be viewed. But uh, those Hobbit movies, though, they could be a little rough sometimes. <laughs> they were not as good a quality as the others. Um, but they have an interesting... Well, I mean, it was based on a very interesting book, a very well-written book. And it's about this dwarf named Thorin. He's the leader of the dwarves. And he has a very interesting title. He's called The King Under the Mountain. And actually, there's like this evil dragon who he claims to be the king under the mountain. But Thorin's goal is to slay the dragon and reclaim the title for himself. And uh, anyway, I was just thinking about that as I as I was reading this segment of verses today where um, I believe it's saying God is the king over the mountain. And and what mountain is that? Well, let's, let's read the verses here and discuss that. So Ezekiel 20, verses 40 through 44. It says, For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them, shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. So there's different ideas on what the mountain of God is that it talks about here. Some say it's heaven. Others say Mount Zion, a hill just outside of Jerusalem. But I believe this to be talking about Jerusalem itself, which is someday going to be the capital of the world in the millennial kingdom of Jesus. And we don't have a world capital right now. Um, you know, I live in Missouri, where our state capital is Jefferson City. For the USA, the capital is Washington, D.C. But in the thousand-year kingdom of Jesus, that is going to be a monarchy, and he will be king of the world, and there will be a capital of the world It's going to be Jerusalem. So God has big plans for Israel and for Jerusalem. Verse 41, as a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to your fathers, and there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So that and that's all the verses we're going to be studying today. Um, I want to go back and review some of them, though, in a minute. But I just want to point out some things here. So for the seventh time there, God said, I swore the seventh time in this chapter. He said, I swore that this land would belong to Israel. I might have to kick them out and discipline them every once in a while but I will always bring them back. You see, God is not finished with these people. He's not finished with this place. God has a plan. 
And nothing's going to stop that plan. Not even the sins of the Israelites. Someday, God said, he will regather them and bring them back into the land for his future purposes. Not even their sins are going to prevent it permanently. It kind of reminds me of this inspirational meme, I guess you call it. I saw this one time, and and I don't know if most people would find this inspirational, but it said, when God put a calling on your life, he already factored in your stupidity. And then it says underneath it, it's the most comforting thing I've ever heard. (laughs) And I just want to claim that for myself. When God put a calling on my life, he already factored in my stupidity. So even though I'm going to mess up from time to time, um, if I if I will just try to stay true to God, I'm going to stay on that path. Uh, Proverbs three, five and six. You know, d- read that. We're not we're not going to be perfect people. None of us are. But if we will commit our way to the Lord and and try, um, He's already factored in that we're going to make mistakes, and we're not going to we're not going to just totally ruin it and and throw out Plan A. Um, if if we'll at least try to keep Him first. So, I like to claim that for myself. The last thing I want to focus on today. Uh, which we're going to spend a bunch of time on it, but I want to focus on what was said in verse 43. And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. So I want to focus on that because part of coming back to God means repenting, and part of repentance means regret for what you did before. Regret is not even quite strong enough of a word, um, but remorse, sorrow, Uh, God said, when you get an understanding of holiness, you are going to loathe the way that you used to be. And I think that's a fair way to put it. Uh, Notice who they're going to be loathing. They're going to be loathing themselves. They're going to have learned the, the lesson of chapter 18. They won't be trying to blame other people for their actions, not their parents, not their culture, not their society. They're going to blame themselves. They're going to own it. And they're going to feel disgust for their sinfulness in the past. If you are a Christian, but you feel no regret for your past sins, I would question whether you've ever truly repented. And so that's what I want to talk about in our application section today. What is genuine repentance? Well, did you like the bonus episode that we did last week on Thursday. Um, Let me know if you did. I'm trying to test a few things out here uh, because I want to try to produce another Thursday episode for this week. And so you should be able to hear it, you know, three days from now, if you're listening on Monday Uh, uh, or whenever you listen, if you find this years later, then this makes no difference to you. But I'm trying to produce some extra episodes here for the next little bit um, as we keep going through Ezekiel 20. and we're going to do that one more time this week uh, and cover the last few verses of this chapter. I'm doing this Thursday thing because I would like to run some special Thursday episodes over the summer, um, especially in the month of June. I would like to really hammer down on this LGBT issue from a Christian's perspective in the month of June, because next month is is Pride Month. And so I'd like to cover it on this podcast, not not as a way to honor Pride Month, <laughs> more of a way to dishonor it because um you know if you've lived in america the past few years if you're a christian with any spiritual attunement you know that the forces of evil and wickedness are just unleashed on this country during that month it's a it's a time unlike any other month of the year and so i want to do what i can to fight back against it here in the month of june 
And I'll let you know something else. I'm not planning on releasing an episode next week on Monday because that is Memorial Day. I've been doing this podcasting thing long enough that I know if I release an episode on a holiday, it's a lost cause. So I'm just, I'm not even going to try. Okay. But I will try to get one out next week on Thursday because that by then it's going to be June. And I want to try to produce some bonus episodes for every single Thursday in June. Now, in the meantime, if you miss me, I do have another podcast. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. It's a weekly show where I look at the past week of fake news. Um, Well, I look at all the news stories, but I do it through kind of a meta narrative of how the media covers the stories. And that one's a lot of fun. It's, It's more focused on current events. So if you don't like fake news, then you definitely don't want to come listen to it. But if you like laughing at fake news then you should come join the fun. I have new episodes of that one, typically on Fridays. If you have a comment, um, leave a comment or or shoot an email to crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. If you appreciate the study today, make sure you've clicked that you're following this podcast um, or like it or whatever whatever you need to do on whatever platform you're listening on. I appreciate that. Okay, I got all that out of the way. (laughs) Those are just the housekeeping things I got to do on each episode. Let's revisit the idea of repentance as we close down today. Because again, all this is spurred on because of that verse that we just read a few minutes ago. It was verse 43. And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves. And you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. So God has said that he would kick Israel out of the land if they sinned too much, which they did. So he did. And then he said he would bring them back, and he will. And he said he would bring them back when they repent, and they will. And one of the ways that we can know their repentance is genuine is that it says they they will loathe themselves for all the evils that they have committed. So they're going to be filled with some deep regret, deep remorse for their actions, and that's how you can know that their repentance is real. If you listen to the last episode about Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, you might remember a verse that we read toward the end of that episode about what will happen when the Jewish people recognize that they killed their Messiah. It, and it said that they would, when they look on me on whom they have pierced, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So here's another signifier of genuine repentance, weeping, and mourning. So obviously a deep emotional regret. Now, I think feeling genuine repentance means you are going to feel certain emotions. But I want to throw this out there too. Are emotions alone proof of real repentance? Okay, is it enough? Like, would you know that you've really repented just because you felt a lot of emotions? Well, to that, I would say no. Because someone can feel negative emotions over their actions, but not really have a change of heart. You know, if someone makes a terrible decision and they feel bad about it, well, that's not necessarily proof that they've had a change of heart. Um, I mean, okay, I've been a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for almost a decade. I've been to a, a decade's worth of youth camps. I've seen a lot of teens weeping at the altar and then going right back into their old life the next day. I've seen a lot of people over the years make proclamations of faith that seemed very sincere, very emotional, and yet it had no lasting impact beyond a week or so. 
And look at Esau, because Esau is someone who's very instructive on this subject of repentance. Hebrews 12 says to see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So it says right there that Esau sought repentance with tears, but he didn't really repent. If you know Esau's story, uh, it's what it's referring to is he made a stupid, selfish, short-sighted, sinful mistake. He treated his birthright for a bowl of soup because he was really, really hungry, but then he made a really, really bad deal. And when he realized his mistake, he tried to repent, but it was only because he cared about the consequences. He didn't care about his, his sin. He cared about the consequences. He cried about the consequences, but he was crying because he was stupid, not because he was a sinner. And when it comes to genuine repentance, I think, you know, generally speaking, emotions are going to be a part of it, but emotions are not all of it. So let's talk about that for our application today. In this application, I'm not giving you this today so you can use it against other people, okay? As I've said before, we can't really know whether someone's repentance for their sin is genuine. Often time will tell, but right then, right in the moment, we might get it wrong. You know, we might look at a person who's showing a lot of emotion at the altar call and think, oh, well, that that person must really mean it. And then you look over and there's a really stony-faced person and and you think they're not really doing anything at all. In reality, you just have no idea what's going on in someone's heart. You know, if they're down at the altar or whatever, emotion's usually going to be a part of it. But often, you know, what I've found is emotion that people show in church, so many times it's just for show. Um, it go, I mean, it goes f- with with worship a lot. Some people are very expressive. They move a lot during worship. Um, there's, they seem very emotional during worship. Some people are very stiff and expressionless. They're not theatrical. Now, that to me, that doesn't mean that the expressive people are just more spiritual than the people who are quiet and still. And hey, personally, I think it's great when people are when worship, when it's lively and expressive. I, you know, I think that's a good thing. I think a church that's more emotional in their worship, um, you know, in my opinion, that's that's probably healthier spiritually than a church that just sits around and has no emotion during a service. But, you know, so I, I like emotion. I think it is appropriate in worship. But on a person-to-person basis, you can't really judge how spiritual someone is just by how they worship, you know, just based on outward emotion. That's not the best indicator because some people are just not very outwardly expressive. So um, you got to remember what 1 Samuel says. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So I'm not telling you today to to go look at other people and try to judge their spirituality, or in this case, what we're talking about is repentance. I'm not telling you to go judge other people and whether they've truly repented over something. What I would like us to do today is assess our own hearts and whether we really repent when we sin. So for me, real repentance has to start with something called conviction. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, he resides inside of you. But before you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit was still there. He was working on your heart. He, he was convicting you so that you would make the decision to want to become a Christian. 
Now, when I say that, I, I'm not one of these people who believes in the doctrine of irresistible grace. I think the Holy Spirit convicts lots of people, but not everyone responds. I think a lot of people resist the Holy Spirit because of pride or, or for whatever reason. But when someone makes the decision to repent, I do believe they are drawn to do so because the Holy Spirit is convicting them. And once you become a Christian, you are still going to feel occasional conviction because we take the Holy Spirit with us wherever we go. So whenever we do something wrong, the Holy Spirit is is right there. He's grieved with within us, and, and we feel sorry for it, usually instantly. I think the conviction of the Holy Spirit is actually one of the evidences that you are a Christian. And, and you might say, but, but, but don't non-Christians feel guilty about things sometimes too? Well, yes, non-Christians even will feel a natural guilt that, that all people feel. Lots of non-Christians will feel bad about something and say sorry, and, and that's not necessarily the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit there to, to knock on your heart and tell you whenever you're wrong. So if someone has the Holy Spirit inside them to guide them and lead them, you know, you might then you might ask yourself, well, why do Christians even ever have a desire to do wrong? And the reason for that is because of something called the flesh. The flesh is the part of you that has urges and desires that are selfish and that are wrong. And every person has the flesh, and you can either live your life submitted to the flesh, or you're going to live it fighting against your flesh. But the sad reality is, your flesh doesn't go away just because you got saved. You know, for here's how the flesh works. I remember one time, this was a while back, but my flesh really wanted me to go get into the cabinet in the kitchen and get out a giant Reister bunny, okay? That's a, that's a Reese's Easter bunny chocolate thing that they sell. At, I really had this urge to go eat the entire thing. Now, logically, okay, mentally, I knew that would be unhealthy. It would not be good for me. But my flesh said one thing, and my sense of logic and well-being said something completely different. And for some reason, I listened to my flesh, and it was the best decision I ever made <laughs> for about two and a half minutes. And then I had a stomach ache for like two hours. So when it, when it comes to moral issues of right and wrong, it actually works very similar, similarly to that. You will deal with the struggle of the flesh versus the spirit. And it's like this wrestling match that's going on inside of you where your flesh wants one thing, but the Holy Spirit inside of you wants something else. Uh, Galatians 5 verses 16 and 17 say this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So conviction, if we were to def define it, it's a sense of imbalance or guilt or unhappiness because of something that you are doing or sometimes even thinking, okay? Let's say your boss comes in and he's like, hey, did you, did you do the thing I asked you to do last Tuesday? Well, if you forgot, then maybe you, might, you, know, you might lie and say, oh yeah, yeah, I did that. Whenever you do that, if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you should instantly feel conviction over telling that lie. And if you're someone who can just lie here and lie there, and you just never feel bad about it, if you just lie all the time and you never feel bad, 
I would say that's actually a strong evidence that you don't have the Holy Spirit. Because if you're a Christian, he's supposed to be residing within you and you feel you feel guilty, you feel a conviction there whenever you do that. And when you experience conviction, when you tell that lie or whenever you do that wrong thing, you have basically two options at that moment, okay? Here's your options. You can come clean and clear your conscience and accept the consequences for it, or you can live with the conviction until however long it takes for it to go away. You know, eventually it will go away, And but here's the problem. If you decide to just live with the conviction, there's another consequence that's going to come with that. You're going to harden yourself to the Spirit. So now, the next time the Spirit tries to get your attention, you're going to be less sensitive to the conviction. And the more you ignore God, the easier it's going to be to ignore God. And guys, we don't want that. Because our goal as Christians is to be as sensitive to God's Spirit as we can. So sensitive that you can even become convicted in your thoughts. That means when when you even think about telling a lie, when you even think about doing something wrong, you immediately feel the Spirit saying, don't go there. That's actually a really good place to be. If that sounds like a bad thing, no, no, that's actually a really good thing. And, and that's where we want to be. And, and you get there by making yourself sensitive to the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? Okay, whenever you do wrong, you apologize. When you have a bad attitude towards someone, you go and say sorry. When you do wrong by someone, you apologize to them. Every time you sin, even if it's a sin that you did in private that didn't affect anybody, you still try to make things right with God. ASAP. Whether it affected another person or not, you make things right with God, ASAP. The quicker, the better. So, whenever you're tempted to sin, again, you have a choice in that moment. You can listen to the Spirit and do what you know is right, you know, even when it's hard. Or, you can tune the Spirit out and do the wrong thing. But, when you pick the second option, well, now you've just made yourself less sensitive to God. And, and so God can send conviction through the Holy Spirit. And that's really the best way to get convicted. Because then it, when that happens, it's just between you and God. You know, nobody has to know, okay? Even if it's, if it's just in your thoughts. <laughs> no one has to know you did it, okay? It's just between you and God. He already knows anyway, but you can deal with it just right there in private. Other times God has to send conviction to us other ways. Sometimes God sends conviction through a sermon, okay? That happens frequently, actually. Or sometimes God sends conviction through just reading the Bible. You know, you read something in the Bible. I've, I've had moments I'm like, oh, I wish I didn't read that. <laughs> you know, that, I have moments like that when I'm reading the Bible. You know, the more I pay attention, the more I have those moments because I'm a very imperfect person and God's word is there to, to correct me and try to get me back on, on the right path and keep me on the right path. So it brings correction sometimes. Um, sometimes God sends conviction through hearing another person say something to you, Okay. And maybe they say it to you directly, or maybe it's something indirectly, and you, but you hate it when that happens. You know, sometimes God has to get our attention that way. Sometimes it's through a person you don't even like, and you just want to write off what they're saying. But you hear them say it, and you're like, ugh. But yeah, that is true. You know, it hurts sometimes, <laughs> but you got to admit sometimes it's true, even if you don't care for the person too much. I remember one time, I, I, I heard Andy Stanley with a quote, Something about raising kids. I can't remember what it was now. 
And um, but I remember that it happened, and I remember, you know, if you're if you've been listening to this since January, you know, I'm not a big fan of Andy Stanley. I don't care for him too much. I did a podcast talking about some of my issues with him because I thought it would be instructive, and I I talked about that a few a few months back. Um, not a big fan of Andy Stanley, but uh, after I read that quote from him. It did convict me so much. I had I called my mom and I apologized for some of the things that I did as a teenager. So um, listen, conviction can come by all sorts of ways. In addition to just directly the Holy Spirit speaking to you, where um, I'd say the Holy Spirit he uses lots of people and opportunities to speak to you in in all kinds of circumstances and, and try to get your attention. But I would just say it's much better to be corrected by God that way than to have God really need to bring the hammer down on you, which it can often be more direct and often be more embarrassing. It's better just to seek God in that personal way. So, uh, Paul, let me let me kind of close today with these thoughts from Paul. Paul had to be direct sometimes. Paul wrote several letters to the Corinthian church. We have two of them. They're called First and Second Corinthians because the Council of Nicaea, they were just creative that way. And uh, sometimes Paul got angry whenever he wrote— and he said things that upset the Corinthians, and it made them feel bad. It made them feel convicted. Uh, but did Paul feel bad about that? Well, in 2 Corinthians 7, we're going to pick up at verse 8. He says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry, sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. So Paul is actually not sorry. He's glad that he made them feel repentance. At first he felt kind of bad about it because he made the Corinthians feel bad about it. But then he saw how they responded and he's like, well, this conviction is a good thing because it made them sorry for their sins and it made them want to make a change. So it was a, guard, a godly sorrow. Remember how I said there's a difference in the conviction that you can feel from the Holy Spirit versus the normal feelings of guilt that every human being feels from time to time? Okay, here's how you can tell the difference. Well, let's keep going with verse 10. He says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So here's some markers he provides right here for how to tell the difference in true godly conviction versus just your average everyday guilt. Okay, here's the two differences. Godly sorrow drives us toward God. Worldly sorrow drives us away from God. Godly sorrow makes you want to get right with God. Worldly sorrow, sorrow might just make you so ashamed that you don't even want to talk to God about what you did wrong. Okay, it might make you just say to yourself, oh, I just don't deserve to talk to God. I just don't deserve to get his forgiveness. Well, if that's how you feel, that is not a conviction of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is drawing you toward God. Another spirit would try to use your guilt to drive you away from God. Godly sorrow makes you want to do whatever you can to make things right. 
worldly sorrow makes you want to do the minimum it takes to get off the hook. Godly sorrow makes you sorry and want to change. Worldly sorrow is just sorry that you got caught. You know, if you went down to a jail or a prison right now, you'd find lots and lots of people who are sorry for what they did. But a lot of the time, if they knew that they could do it again and get away with it without getting caught, they still would have done it. And see, that is not true sorrow. That's not godly sorrow. That's just a worldly sorrow. We want the godly sorrow. The, listen, Esau sought repentance with tears. Esau sought it with tears, but he didn't have a heart change. He was sorry about the consequences. He bawled his eyes out in grief about the consequences, but he didn't repent. Here's the emotions that godly sorrow are going to make you feel. According to, again, to 2 Corinthians 7, it says it's going to make you feel diligence. It means you're going to strive to, or want to strive to be a better person. Clearing of yourselves. It makes you want to make things right. It makes you want to confess what you did wrong to someone. It means you want to make up for whatever you took away from someone. Indignation. It means you are angry at the thing that led you into sin. Fear. It makes you fearful of God's discipline. There's many times that my strongest drive to confess something that I had done wrong was that I was just afraid God was going to whoop me if I didn't. <laughs> God's had to whoop me a few times before. <laughs> and I, I didn't like it very much. Uh, when I was a kid, my dad's whoopings would scare me. But I tell you what, I would much rather have one of my dad's whoopings than get one of God's whoopings. Hebrews says that a loving father disciplines his children— and God is the most loving father of all. So that fear of God's discipline, that's oftentimes going to be enough to keep me in line. Desire and zeal, two more emotions that godly sorrow is going to present, uh, pr produce. Desire and zeal, it means you are more passionate and you desire God more strongly after you admit your sins. And then finally, you'll feel vindication that once you've done all the other things, your conscience is clear, and the guilt goes away. If we could put it all into one word, I think the best word for it would be repentance. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Not mere guilt, but a true life change. It actually reminded me a bit of this clip that I saw shared on Facebook, and um, I want to share that with you today. The, the name of the video is When the Worship Leader Shares Too Much. I actually saw this a while back, and I thought, man, this really goes good with my my upcoming cross-references Bible study on repentance, so I'm going to share it with you today, and, uh, and I really just think it nails all these categories right here. So it's called When the Worship Leader Shares Too Much. As this guy's talking, uh, there's, a, there's the crowd there, and they're a little bit—you know, first they're with him, but then they start to get a little bit bewildered the more and more he goes on. Because you still love me. Even in my darkest moments When I was in all the wrong places With all the wrong people When I didn't say thank you at the drive-thru When I stole a DVD of Shrek 2 When I committed tax fraud And my brother went to prison Even though it was me When I pushed that old lady down a hill For no reason when I told my friend his dog went missing, but I ran it over. 
You know, just a real powerful video <laughs> there, right? And it, it, it actually, I'm just kind of pointing out here too. It just, it's got all those emotions right there that we were just talking about in Second Corinthians seven. Uh, it, it's diligence. Okay, you can tell this guy he's striving to be a better person now. He's striving not to be the same guy who did all those things before. Um, clearing of yourselves, you know, it makes you want to make things right and by confessing what you did wrong. Um, you know, this guy is, is being very transparent right here. So he's definitely trying to trying to clear his name at this moment. Uh, desire and zeal, you know, that you're more passionate, that you desire God more strongly. Well, hey, you could hear it in that guy's voice right there. Vindication, that once you've done all other things, your conscience is clear. Well, that, that guy's conscience sounds pretty clear to me now. Um, so I, I kind of like that video. It just summed everything up right there that we were just talking about. Uh, from Second Corinthians, but if if I could also just sum it all up in one word, if I could just sum all this up into one word, here's the word I would use: repentance. Godly sorrow produces repentance. To repent means a change of mind. It means you thought one way, you had one worldview, but now you think another way. You have totally changed your entire way of thinking about something. The way to tell if someone has repented is to see if they are still chasing after sin as much as they were in the past. If someone says something like, oh man, I I have this real problem with cussing. I'm just going to go down here and pray and give it to God and I'm going to apologize and repent. Well, okay, let's test it and see if it was true. If the next day, if the next week, they're still cussing just as much, have they really repented? I Probably not. You know, and, and hey, I'll be fair. Repentance doesn't always mean we're just going to be perfect, Okay repentance of cussing. It doesn't mean someone's just going to quit cussing cold turkey. Okay. They usually are going to start saying fewer the next day and fewer after that, because it is a habit that needs to be broken. It's, it's a bad habit. So it doesn't just go away overnight, but also to be fair, if they really repent for it, there's no reason that it shouldn't be improving after a few weeks or after a few months. Okay. Because true repentance changes your heart. Repentance means that if you could do it again and get away with it, you wouldn't. So I would say that's the key signifier to whether we've really repented. Right there. Repentance means that if you could do it again and get away with it, you wouldn't. If you have something you need to repent of, make it right with God today. If you were listening to this podcast and you felt conviction about something as I was speaking— Hey, guess what? You're in a really good place right now because you have an opportunity to make it right, to respond to the Holy Spirit. And just do it right now. Don't delay. If you have someone to apologize to today, make it right. Restore that relationship with the Holy Spirit. I think if we learn anything from Ezekiel, and it's the thing that keeps amazing me as we do these studies on the book, it's that no matter how bad they've been, God will always take the people back when they finally repent. So if there's distance between you and God today, he's not the one who moved. He's just there waiting for you to come back. And that's true for everyone, Christian, sinner, young, old, anybody. When you need God, just speak Jesus. It's so easy, even a four-year-old can understand it. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, do not eat the Reister Bunny.